Welcome back to Ford Momentum. We are back with a special conversation today that I am incredibly excited about. I have none other than Eric Wind of Wind Vintage with me to talk about the history of motorsport, watches, and explore the connection between the two. There aren't too many updates from last week's season wrap-up on the Formula One season and the rumor mill, but it does look like Red Bull's team principal Christian Horner is ruling out any move to Ferrari, which just makes sense. He's got a perfect situation for himself at Red Bull and basically has free reign to do what he wants with the team. So moving to a new team makes absolutely no sense in this context. I think Ferrari needs to take a little bit of time to figure out what they're looking for in a new team principal and really understand where their shortcomings are as a team in order to make an informed decision about who should take Matteo Benatti's seat. The one major update for next season is that the Chinese Grand Prix has been canceled. The Chinese Grand Prix was slotted for the 16th of April, which is early in the season, but it's been canceled due to the nation's COVID travel policies. F1 is looking to replace this race, and so it looks like the 23 race season will be moving forward, but it's an interesting scenario in which F1 finds itself. Personally, I'll be curious to see if they are able to find a replacement race or if the season will go back to being a 22-race season. At this point, I can't imagine the logistical challenges that would have to be overcome in order to get another race slotted in in April of 2023. It looks like there might be two options, which would be to have two races in a row at one circuit if they wanted to continue with the 23-race season. This would most likely mean racing twice at Melbourne, which is the weekend before the Chinese Grand Prix. Um, cars, teams, equipment are already there. And the other choice would be Baku, but I can't see F1 making the decision to race two weekends in a row on the street circuit in Baku. And frankly, I don't think they would have the ability to leave the course set up. It would just wreak havoc on the Azerbaijani capital. I think it would be a problem. But I do think that Formula One and Liberty Media are really pushing to find another race to fill that slot in the calendar. We'll see what happens. I will be curious to see if Liberty Media doesn't push for another race in the United States during that time. Logistically, that would be a nightmare. But we'll see what comes out. I'll keep you posted as we hear further developments. Without further ado, let's get into the podcast for today. My name is Todd Searle. I'm obsessed with watches. I pay attention to them everywhere I see them. One place I've been surprised to see them frequently is in the cockpit of Formula One cars. I'm a crazed Formula One fan, and I keep noticing watch brands sponsoring cars, races, and I kept seeing them pop up on drivers' wrists. I wanted to understand why watch brands lean so heavily on the world of motorsport. This is Forward Momentum, where we explore the interconnection between watches and the world of motorsport luxury goods, gear, and the creators behind those brands. Welcome to Ford Momentum. Today, I have a very special episode with guest Eric Wind. Eric Wynn founded and owns Wind Vintage, a company he started in 2017 that is dedicated to offering exceptional watches for sale at all price points and providing advisory services to top vintage watch collectors around the world. 
Eric previously served as vice president, senior specialist for Christie's, where he helped lead the sale of a number of important watches at auction around the world and through private sales. Eric has been featured and quoted in a number of publications, including The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, The New Yorker, The Financial Times, The Chicago Tribune, Hodinkee, GQ, Rob Report, Fortune, Men's Health, The Hollywood Reporter, and more. Eric cut his teeth writing and researching about watches for Hodinkee, and I was lucky enough to meet Eric and feature him in my book, 32 Regrets. We've stayed in touch and share a lot of passion for watches, international politics, and talking about watches, what's happening in the world broadly, and how that's impacting watch markets. He's a great friend, a deeply knowledgeable collector and seller, and just a great guy to converse with. We dive deep into watches and motorsport. Please enjoy the conversation with Eric Wind. Eric Wind, welcome to Forward Momentum. How's it going? Great. How about you, Todd? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for being here, man. Thank you. And uh, I, I count it as a feather in my cap that your book includes a little snippet about me. So it's a pleasure, <laughs> to, pleasure to be in your book. Yeah, absolutely, man. Happy to have you back on the show or on the show. I haven't had you back, but hopefully you'll be a repeat guest here in the future. We'll we'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Really excited to have you here just because you're you're such a specialist in vintage watches. And I think the motorsport story isn't complete without looking at vintage watches and understanding yeah. the connection there. And that's really what I want to get to today. But off the bat, I'd really love to hear your reactions to um, the Geneva auctions, uh, GPHG, and the Hong Kong auctions that just happened. Yeah, I think um, the market remains pretty stable and strong. So I'm happy about that, obviously, as a kind of dealer and collector. Um, we didn't see anything too crazy. I, I would say one thing that I'm seeing in the market, I saw it reflected in in both the Geneva and Hong Kong auctions are that the untouched, very beautiful Patek Philippe vintage watches are really growing in, in price. And the thing that people don't realize is that probably 99% of the pre-1960 Patek Philippe watches have clean dials. Obviously, most have polished cases like any vintage watch. Uh, and people are beginning to understand that really untouched examples are, you know, one out of maybe 500 pieces. So, uh, and just special examples in general are really, really increasing in value, which is good for me as a fan of vintage watches and vintage Patek Philippe. Um, so yeah, of course, the last two years, we saw a huge growth in independent prices things are kind of stabilizing. I feel like some things are falling, but, um, but a lot of the markets are more established now. And, uh, I was, you know, just happy, happy to see the results overall as strong and stable. That's it's interesting. I think there was some really cool vintage Patex that came up. I think there was a lot more vintage pieces in Hong Kong than we've seen at other yep. auctions. Yep. I also feel like there was a lot more sort of like gem set or sort of um, piece uniques or sort of more one-off watches that like don't fall in the Rolex normal catalog with yeah. uh, with stone dials and with gem setting that just 
there isn't really a market for. So for me coming off of Hong Kong, it was really hard to gauge what the actual market was doing. Like, obviously it was very strong in Hong Kong, but it's yes. hard to kind of gauge broader market trends based off of what happened in Hong Kong, because there were so many special um, and sort of unique pieces that were at auction. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, it was more vintage oriented, which is good. That, you know, continues to be a market that's growing in its appreciation for vintage watches. Um, and, you know, we'll see how the New York auctions do uh, you now next week. I think they should do pretty well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm curious to see what happens in New York, because I think that will sort of set the tone for going into the end of the year. But I don't know about you. I have a little bit of auction fatigue now, uh, <laughs> yeah, having watched yeah. the the sort of um, it feels like the this fourth quarter auction swing between Geneva, Hong Kong, New York always feels very frenetic. And at the end, I'm kind of like, cool, I'm done. I'm ready to take a break. Yeah, yeah. If if I was running an auction uh, house or their watch department, I would space it out a little bit. Of course, there's synergy and network effect of of having the auctions at the same time. But Sotheby's is off cycle in Hong Kong because they do it as a full luxury week, as does Christie's. But uh, the Sotheby's Hong Kong auction is in October and in April. So that kind of is a lead in to the season. And I've found that they've obviously done extremely well because there's kind of pent up demand in their first, you know, first mover. Having worked at Christie's New York, it was a constant issue where we'd have great watches and they would underperform because the dealers and collectors have already spent their money over the previous two few weeks because we're talking about a one month cycle between Geneva, Hong Kong, New York. Uh, and it was consistent that we heard, oh, I would have bid on that, but I've got to pay for all this other stuff I just <laughs> want. Um, so it was frustrating. But also for those that were had enough liquidity or uh, the foresight to kind of see what was coming up in New York uh, was a good buying opportunity for them. So we shall see. I've got my eyes on a couple things in New York and hopefully we'll get them. Yeah, absolutely. We might have to talk off uh, off topic here about that because it's always fun to dive into those catalogs and see what catches your eye. And there's a couple of things that caught my eye there too, to what you just described, having that same thought of like, huh, interesting. This might be a good time to try and snag a few watches because there might yeah. not be as much demand here. Correct. Yeah, exactly. I think it'll be interesting to see what happens coming into New York, just because I think that'll tell us where the market is settling a little bit. Because it's been, as you know, a crazy two or three years here. And Definitely. for those of us who's been around for a long time, it's been a crazier decade to see what's happened in watches. Yes. Yeah, that's for sure. That's insane. <laughs> Switching gears a little bit from current auctions. I want to get your view on the historical connection between watches and motorsport. What gave rise to this and why you think there's, or if you think there's really a genuine connection here between watches, cars, motorsport, and sort of in that space. There's absolutely a huge connection between watches and motorsport. I think it's evident to those that are, I would say, in motorsport and watches, but maybe it doesn't have as much 
broad knowledge i feel like in the watch community as like obviously the connection between the speedmaster and space and you know the submariner and sea dweller and the deep seas and sea exploration and those sorts of things so uh so i think it really is a worthwhile topic for many people that are collectors today their first exposure to high-end watches were watching the Formula One races in the 60s and 70s. And that's why they might gear toward buying vintage Hoyer chronographs and Anacar chronographs and Daytonas and those sorts of things. Um, and, uh, you know, we can discuss that all at length. I found it very interesting to kind of track scholarship and look at old photographs as the scholarship really continues to develop, I would say, about who wore what back in the day and how these watches were part of their their kit and livery. So it's pretty interesting. So you mentioned Hoyer and the Daytona, both Rolex as a brand I've gone deep on here. Hoyer as a brand I've gone a little bit deeper on. And there's there's great stories with both of those, but you mentioned Inacar as well. Um, yeah. I'm curious, what watch from them stands out to you as a motorsport watch? And are there other watches that really stand out to you as motorsport specific pieces? Yes. So a few things. Um, one, the Sherpa graph to answer your first question is really Inacar's prime piece that was worn by jim clark he gave them to his his uh some of his team after he won an important race um sterling moss uh wore one you know that was kind of the beginning of the golden era of f1 that early 60s period before we it really took off and we got to know all the famous drivers starting in the later 60s through 70s um but basically back when it was nylon webbing strapped to a fuel can with some wheels yeah. on it. Yeah. 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 And it was like, you could just see it like historically begin to take off there. That's very cool. There's a lot of great images of drivers wearing Sherpa graphs and, and a car chronographs from the early to mid sixties. And then they were kind of surpassed or overtaken due to whatever reasons, not really paying people as much, et cetera. And that's when Hoyer became more popular and then Rolex in the late sixties and seventies as well. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, it's very interesting. I also think of the Navitimer because Jim Clark famously wore a Navitimer a lot after the Enicar days. Uh, so Jim of course was one of the most famous, you know, drivers in the early to mid sixties, Scottish, uh, background. He's kind of a national hero in Scotland, and I like the photos of him wearing Navitimers as well. Uh, there's a galley named after Jim, but we don't actually have any photos of him wearing it. Interesting. Uh, so that might be a little bit of an urban legend, like a Steve McQueen Explorer 2 or something. Um, <laughs> but uh, but anyways, yeah, I associate him with both Sherpa graphs and, and Navitimers. Uh, and I like the galley watch a lot. I'm just not sure he actually wore it. Um, so, uh, there's no photographic evidence. It's only a personal story, supposedly from a family member. So, um, so yeah, those, those are some, and then of course the first, really one of the first racing kind of oriented chronographs is the Omega Speedmaster, 
uh, which came out in 1957 and was really designed for auto racing. It was never in the designer's wildest dreams that that would be the watch that goes to the moon uh, in 1969. It was designed and came out in 57 with the bezel being a tachymeter in order for people to quickly see their speed. Uh, and that obviously was that later used by the Rolex Daytona. Um, Auto certain Autavias have that tachymeter bezel, etc. So uh, that was, you know, an important step forward in being able to quickly calculate speed on your wrist in a legible way when you're driving so fast. Yeah, absolutely. I I love all these stories, and it's it's kind of cool there that you paint the picture sort of from the early days of. Uh, Jim Clark to the beginning of Speedmaster, you know, beginning of Speedmaster production, Jim Clark, the beginning of Daytona production. And in the meanwhile, Hoyer has been around in uh, automotive and aviation, hence the Autavia, for a really long time. And they've been around. And I love that Jack Hoyer was a marketing genius in recognizing that Formula One drivers were actually a really good marketing tool. And then the famous story about him meeting with Enzo Ferrari and, you know, Mr. Ferrari didn't want the actual watches. He didn't really care about them. He wanted the timing equipment because yeah. he didn't trust the Le Mans French timekeepers yes. that they would keep accurate time for his Italian team. Yeah, I know. I love that. Um, so a couple things, I guess, related to that. Obviously, Jack was very influenced seeing the Carrera Panamericana and hearing about that. Um, obviously that led them using the term Carrera for the watch that came out in 1963, the Carrera, which also was one year after the Autavia was reintroduced, which he was part of the team. That was a transitional year when he actually took ownership of the company, had bought out his uncle and raised some capital and made that transitional part. So he was part of the Autavia relaunch because previously the Autavia was just a dashboard clock, which was really one of Hoyer's focus starting in the 1930s were, were dash timers and not as much on the wristwatches related to car racing. So um, they re re resurrected and revitalized the Autavia name. Then the Carrera was really his baby. He got the case from Picaret, Irvin Picaret essay and he liked the concept of how the crystal was held in place by that ring, allowing for a very clean dial without any, you know, minute marks and fifth of a second marks that those could remain on the, the tension ring. Then uh, that was kind of a turning point. The Camaro came out shortly thereafter. They continued to evolve the Autavia line. It looked a lot like the Daytona, which obviously came out in 63. So he was using dials also from Singer, who made the dials for the Speedmaster and for the Daytona and kind of all important chronographs in, the, in that period. Um, one thing, you know, people don't realize even to this day is that watch companies, it's not like they're making the cases and making the dials and all this stuff. Really the, the watch companies were the manufacturer putting it all together and still are to this day. So they had preferred case makers, dial makers, et cetera. And that's why a lot of the dials look the same because Singer had a certain way of producing their dials and they were the leading chronograph dial maker at that time. And everyone used them for these things. Hoyer was 
essentially pivoted in the 60s to producing chronographs only in the 50s they had this kind of odd period where they did time onlys and alarms and other stuff which i like those watches a lot but they found that they were going to play to their strengths and being such a stopwatch oriented company and dash timer company that they should just focus on chronographs exclusively so um that was that was important and Jack was very revolutionary in that he signed the Swiss driver, Joe Safer, or as we say in the U.S., Siffert, to be a Hoyer brand ambassador. And Joe would take the watches and resell them to other drivers and was like a wheeler dealer kind of on the, on the pits. So <laughs> suddenly he got all these guys wearing Hoyers and he was really important because Hoyer had spent years as part of Project 99 working with Breitling, Hamilton, and Dubois de Prada to create the first automatic chronograph, which of course three came out at the same time in 1969, Seiko, Zenith, and, and the Caliber 11 as part of the Project 99 endeavor. So Joe was of course famously wearing a chronomatic model now nicknamed the Sifford Octavia white dial black registers blue accents on the dial and it was very important for their marketing given all the money that was invested in that project yeah absolutely and it's it's interesting now to think about how companies would come together to work on those movements and develop things and at the same time you have the center for horloger Electronique. You've got the Swiss working on quartz watches, trying to fight the quartz crisis. And at the same time, you've got Rolex in the background with the Daytona, where it wasn't their main focus. It was just part of their lineup. And they were unsellable at the time. Like nobody was buying a Daytona. It was like a buy another Rolex. We'll throw in a Daytona for you. You know, it's like your competitive advantage. Rolex was known all about their automatic watches, the whole perpetual endeavor obviously since the 1930s and 20s so the idea that you'd buy a rolex that wasn't automatic was you know not not what people had in their heads at that time just like hoyer in the 50s found you know they weren't really a time only and alarm kind of watch company people went to Vulcane or jaeger lacultra for their alarms and other brands for time only models so they had to pivot to focus on chronographs only yeah, absolutely. Do you think things would have turned out differently for Hoyer had they made that pivot earlier, sort of had they seen that writing on the wall in the 50s and stuck with chronographs, stopwatches? Like, could they have been the Omega of today based I mean, on that transition? I'd, it's hard to say. I mean, they were so small as a company and they were focused Jack actually did an internship in the United States at Abercrombie & Fitch, which was one of their key partners. They did obviously created the Seafair model for them, the So Lunar model, and did all kinds of other pieces for Abercrombie. But they did so few watches at that time. They were really almost exclusively a stopwatch company. And that was really what people knew Hoyer for. I think they they did the pivot as best they could. It was just the 70s and 80s kind of killed them. Jack actually made that pivot big time into electronic watches in the 70s, LED and then LCD screen pieces, etc. And unfortunately, when 
basically the company went bankrupt or was going bankrupt. So he was, I think, pushed out and essentially didn't get any money for his equity at that time. So it was, uh, you know, it was just a tough time for the Swiss watch industry, the mid to late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't realize, Hoyer, that Jack was actually a Abercrombie and Fitch alum. I yes. threw myself in that pool as well. So, oh wow, um, where did that's, you? Work? Uh, that's kind of cool. I worked at their headquarters actually. Oh, um, in Ohio. Yeah, and this was in oh. the this was in the transition phase between when they were trying to go full fashion brand, coming out of the '90s, being still an outfitter and leaning into that outfitter heritage. I was there during the full swing into like fashion trend that's, at that time. That's awesome. I yeah. tried. I actually had some conversations with them a couple of years ago about trying to do some watch collaborations or other cool stuff, but they're like just clueless. So it was pretty yeah. funny. I, I was like, you know, be sick to sell watches or do some limited editions. It wouldn't even be any financial risk to you, but would be exciting. And they yeah. just, you know, some people just don't get it. Yeah, I think people would be into it too, just because you know, if, you, if you look back into their catalog, it was canoes and shotguns and rifles yeah. and watches. Yeah. yeah, and watches yeah. and tools for explorers and expeditions. Yes. And like playing cards and poker kits and backgammon sets. And like they were kind of luxury, but not like super luxury, but they had their store in New York and Chicago and then I think San Francisco. And that's where you went to get outfitted for your trips, big game yeah. hunting in Africa and things. Yeah. Um, it was that was the place to go on Fifth Avenue for all of that stuff. Pretty yeah, fun. they were the American version of James Purdy. Uh yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, and uh kind of cool. And the watch was part of that because they had the seafarer, which no one else had. So you could track high and low tide with your watch and yeah uh, it's very very cool yeah yeah i've seen a couple of those it's that's kind of cool that might be a fun story to dive into in a in a future episode here come back yeah. and, and chat with you about because that you know near and dear to my heart in some ways but yes uh kind of fun so we've talked about a lot of different sort of motorsport watches and the companies involved and the drivers involved what is it about watches and cars? And there's still this association today. And like, what is it about those two objects that always seems to bring them together? Yeah, I think you you just always want to have a timekeeper if you're driving, even today. You know, it's just natural to look down at your your wrist and see something. It's just part of the heritage since the early days. Obviously, we have clocks in modern cars, but Many of the vintage cars don't really even have clocks or or that sort of stuff. So if you're driving a vintage car, you you want to watch on, and it just naturally uh, is a tie. And then certainly with car racing is all about speed, obviously, and allowing you to track your speed and the amount of time spent, time elapsed. Uh, you know that's very fundamental and visceral to the whole endeavor. So that's certainly what it's all about. And it seems now like a lot of brands are leaning into that heritage and leaning into that feeling. Do you see that as a marketing abuse of that connection? For me, it still makes a lot of sense that brands do this, right? That brands are involved in racing on every level, whether it's karting for kids coming up in the like formula series or whether it's world endurance championship or formula one, you don't see it as much in NASCAR. 
But if you look at Formula One, every car, every race suit has a watch brand on it. And it's really easy for me to understand the connection because the eyeballs that are on Formula One, the people who are there from a marketing standpoint, it makes a lot of sense. But also from a historical connection, there's so many great stories about these watches and the drivers, the cars, the victories, the defeats, the gifts, like the Ayrton Senna Rolex Daytona is one of my favorite stories out there. Um, there are share, just all these great stories. Yeah. Share the story. Would oh, you want to share sorry. that Ayrton Senna? Uh, no, go ahead. I don't, I don't know it that, that oh, well. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. I've heard it, but you, you can probably retell it better than I can. Yeah, so, so pieces I know about that story, and feel free to jump in here. Ayrton was looking for a gift to give to the guy who really got him, and I'm blanking on his name. I think it's Angelo, maybe? Yeah. I'm blanking on the name. But it was the guy who I think sponsored him in his karting days and really helped him get from Brazil into actually European racing and get to European championships. And he was looking for a way to say thank you. And when he was doing that, he was able to get a yellow gold Rolex Daytona. And when he got the Daytona, he had it engraved on the case back. And it said to Angelo, or I think, or Da Angelo from Ayrton. It was in Portuguese, yeah. uh, I think. But it was a gift that was given from Ayrton Senna to his manager who helped him get from basically racing in carts to racing in formula cars. And it it's just kind of a cool story because we've heard so many stories about drivers giving watches as gifts, not only to people who are important to them, to their crew, to their team. And it's such a cool way to say thank you and such a good remembrance in many ways. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, that's my understanding as well. And um, Ayrton was also famously wore a tag Hoyer in the, in the 80s. The tag Hoyer has consistently been tied with motorsport obviously max verstappen wears is a tag hoyer brand ambassador which was a good pick for them given that he won the championship last year and and this year yeah yeah this year uh as well so two in a row yeah yeah and um lewis hamilton of course and iwc iwc yeah. is not really known traditionally as a automotive racing company but they they are now, honestly, that they've pivoted that way. Um, and the Lewis Hamilton IWC with that Patronus Mercedes blue uh, loom is really, I think, a very successful watch for them. Uh, and certainly very closely associated now with them. So, you know, other brands have hopped on the bandwagon, whether they have the heritage or not. But Tag Heuer is certainly arguably the best racing heritage and obviously Rolex as well. Ferrari is always doing partnerships with different companies. Now it's Richard Neal, obviously in the world's thinnest watch. Ferrari did, you know, Panerai's, Gerard Perigo's, everything else. Yeah. Jean taught sale at Christie's a yeah. few weeks ago in Geneva, $31 million for his watch collection. Jour, the Jorn Ferrari, like all these crazy yeah. Ferrari affiliated watches, you know, I did, a, I did a deep dive on that. And I'm curious, I, I thought the Ferrari Centigraph, the one of three, right? Jean Todd had one, FP Jorn had one, and Michael Schumacher has one. I thought for sure that watch would have gone for a higher number than it did. 
Yeah. Um, and I, I mentioned on the podcast a few weeks ago, I would love to get in touch with Mick Schumacher or the Schumacher family, because I would love for them to bring Michael's watch to auction in support of research into brain and spinal cord injuries. Um, yes. And whether that includes CET, um, you know, it would be really cool to see that watch come up for auction, but I thought that watch would go for more money. Yeah, I mean, I thought they didn't really tell the story that well. I used to work for Christie's. Uh, there were a lot of watches in the auction in Jorn's as well. Um, you know, I think the red paint for the dial was actually Ferrari red paint is my understanding. That wasn't really told as part of the story, I don't think. Um, and, you know, sometimes even for these top lots, people don't understand them or it gets lost in the shuffle. You only have a month to really market it between when the catalog comes out and and the sale happens. So it's always about trying to, to find people to appreciate it. I thought it did well given what I understood about the watch, but it probably, it could have gone higher. There were a lot of Jorns this season. Yeah. So there were a crazy amount of Jorns total. So it's when you have that many, it's kind of scattershot. If it was like a normal season, you know, two years ago, there wouldn't have been as many Jorns and it would have gotten more attention, but obviously the Jorn market's much hotter than it was two years ago. So yeah, uh, there's pros and cons to that. Yeah. And another perfect example of drivers giving watches as gifts. Uh, five of those Jorns were actually gifts from Michael Schumacher to Jean Todd um, oh, yeah, that yeah, were yeah. in the auction when he was yes. um, uh, the head of Scuderia Ferrari. So, yeah, um, yeah exactly. you know, there's a I feel like there's a genuine connection there because I feel like it's a it's a gift for that a driver can give to a team principal or to the team. You know, like you can do a group buy on something yeah. uh, and you just going back really quickly, you had mentioned Tag Heuer <clears throat> and Lewis Hamilton, Martin Senna, Steve McQueen and Lamont, even though it wasn't really part of Steve McQueen, the man, Max Verstappen, Daniel Ricardo. at one point. There's so many great drivers who've worn Tag Heuer as Nikki a logo. La Nicky Lauda. Nicky Lauda, yeah. When he was with Ferraris, his gold his gold Carrera, obviously so closely tied those gold Carreras go for incredible numbers. Now several hundred K if it was from a driver, the James Hunt wore a Carrera NST and other models. I liked, you know, and, and take Hoyer has been smart about, uh, lending watches, of course, Ford V Ferrari. I don't know that. I mean, Carol Shelby had a Shelby Carrera, but it was sort of a disambiguation, if you will. It was the wrong period for him to be wearing a Carrera in the early 60s. They show him wearing the Carrera silver dial two registers, which didn't come out till the mid uh, 60s. But Whoops. Uh, they had him wearing that. And of course, the the Rush movie about Lauda and Hunt, they both are wearing vintage Hoyer chronographs on loan from the museum. But they switched them accidentally. So they had uh, Hunt wearing a gold Carrera <laughs> in the movie <laughs> on Oops. a bracelet. So that was a mistake by the property master. That's pretty funny. And they had like <laughs> Lauda wearing a steel silver stone or something. Um, but, but it was just classic, really. Also, just, just for anyone listening, if you've seen Ford versus Ferrari, the movie, you should really read Go Like Hell because it is a much more historically accurate 
version of events. I mean, it is the genuine history of Ford versus Ferrari, and it's a great yeah. read. If you haven't read it, it's it's worth the read. That's awesome. I haven't read it, but I'm somewhat familiar with the story. I've got a client who's the son of one of the drivers involved. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. He couldn't really watch it. He started watching it and he's just like, I, I was like, you really should try. He's like, I can't. I know I'm going to be too mad. <laughs> and then, yeah. And I, then he's watching it and he has to turn it off like 30 minutes in. It's pretty funny. <laughs> I yeah. said, what if I watched it with you? He's like, even then, I'm not sure I can watch it, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's, that's interesting. I didn't realize the, uh, the sort of inaccuracies in the film there. I mean, but... I think that the broad strokes are correct, but if you're like, yeah. feel very uptight about it or, you know, he lived it as a kid and his father was doing it, it's just too much emotion. There, I yeah, think, for, for sure. <laughs> for crazy. sure. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's a great film. I mean, it's, it's the racing scenes are kind of incredible in that film yeah. and it does show a lot of what happens in car development that still happens today. Yeah. yeah. Obviously it's a lot safer today than it was racing in Le Mans in the sixties. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of stuff that's happened and thank God for that. Um, yes, but there, there are all these great stories about watches and motorsports. So for you, is there a genuine connection here? Does this story sort of track and really exist? No, not at all. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> of course it does. Yeah, of course it does. That's one of the strongest connections for people. And I'm pretty involved in the vintage Tag Heuer collecting community. My first kind of fancy vintage watch, if you will, was a Carrera, which turned out to be an early eggshell Carrera before we even had defined I even defined what that was really that the earliest ones had more of a white dial and the later ones had a silver dial, um, which we call eggshell on the early, early ones. But most of the people in that community, I'm 36 years old. They're much older, but they're into it because that's what they grew up watching formula one with their dad in the sixties and seventies, seeing the Hoyer patches on the, racing suits and then seeing the Le Mans movie with Steve McQueen back in the day and he's wearing the Hoyer badge and the Monaco in the movie um, which wasn't really a racing watch by the way it was more of their design watch Jack Hoyer yeah. basically only gave he he had three left when they sent them to the property master Don Nunley and they gave Steve McQueen the choice ultimately of what to wear, but it wasn't the appropriate watch compared to the Carrera and the Autavia because those had tachymeter scales. The Monaco does not. And Jack did the Monaco case because it was, quote, more the design interesting watch for like architects or like those interested in something unusual. But it was very distinctive, obviously, particularly with the blue dial and Steve picked that, you know, for thankfully for Tag Heuer. But uh, that is, <laughs> yeah, that's kind of funny. But people remember these vintage Heuer chronographs on their wrists and that's had an impact on them later. As they say, like the cars that people want are the the cars that were on the post posters when you were a kid. So people yeah. know the 80s as younger people get wealth and obviously age we've seen 80s cars and 90s cars really take off and back in the day everyone wanted the american muscle cars for the our parents generation for the 
60s muscle cars, 70s muscle cars, seeing it just continues to evolve. And as time goes on, the really old stuff from the 20s and 30s isn't quite as relevant for for a lot of people, the masses, because it's so far before their time. Yeah, absolutely. I remember seeing the image of Steve McQueen on the set of Le Mans wearing the Hoyer Monaco. And I must have been seven, eight years old. And my brother had it hung up on his wall. And oh, wow. that image just stuck with me. And I had no idea who Steve McQueen was, what was going on. And I was like, that guy's cool. He's wearing a cool watch. Like he just looks cool. And he's standing next to a cool racing car. So for yeah. me, the seed was sort of planted early. And there's always been this connection. It's always existed in my mind. Yeah. And the more I go back into the history and the stories, it's just further proof to me that there is a shared history here. And you um, have a vintage Hoyer. I do. I do have a vintage Hoyer. Yeah, so, um, which is and, probably all for, as a result of seeing that poster. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, it's it's part and parcel of the same thing. And I think because watches are mechanical devices, cars are mechanical devices. And in today's age, I think people are searching for that analog connection to an object because we spend a lot of time like this on Zoom and less time connecting in person and really getting those genuine connections and I think people find in vintage cars or in vintage watches that they can actually find that analog connection. Are you seeing the same thing with your business and what people are buying? I do. I I will say like the vintage car collector community, it's funny to me that they don't get more into the vintage watches as a general concept. Like if you go to any vintage car events and start looking around at people's wrists, it's insanely disappointing. There's a famous Ferrari show at the Breakers in Palm Beach down the street from me. And these people are wearing really horrendous watches in many cases. <laughs> um, yeah. There's a lot of Chopard, Millimiglia stuff. And like other, that's like on the better end of the scale than there's like, tons of people with 10, $20 million Ferraris and they're wearing Apple watches or like really crazy cheap junk. So that is always kind of surprising. Like it's, it's way out of the norm. If you see someone wearing a cool watch at a vintage car show from my experience, <laughs> it's kind of funny. Yeah. And I would actually say the same for air shows, but I, I, I think there is, for me, there's a, this this real visceral connection between watches as a mechanical device that can be repaired and vintage cars as a mechanical device that can also be repaired and, and things that you grew up with and things that you grew up loving. Is there a, uh, a particular car or a particular watch that you grew up loving that you'd still love to track down? Um, I, I mean, thankfully, I've I mean, the first kind of luxury watch I was ever familiar with was a Submariner. Um, I would say I've, that was one of the first vintage watches I purchased. And like, it's just still one of my favorites. On the car side, I haven't gotten into the car collecting side as much at this point. Um, still young and still growing my business, but it seems like it's a good way to spend a lot of money. That's what every car collector will tell you uh, and the upkeep and everything else. Uh, and I have young kids, so it's not like, I think for a lot of people that have vintage cars, they're either 
pre-kid or kind of post-kid like the kids are in either they're of an age like where they can join you or like they're teenagers or they're off in college and then you have more free time my kids are one four and eight so um not you know getting a two-seater expensive car <laughs> and driving around with like two kids left at home with my yeah. wife but uh um yeah so we're we're you know it's just it's a lifestyle thing but um certainly really would love to get a vintage porsche i mean that's a, like a starter you know don't need to get anything crazy but like a vintage 911 or something else that's like a car i've always loved and uh i'm sure uh lord willing i will get one at, at some point but that's the that's the first like serious vintage car i would purchase Absolutely, man. And then you can wear your vintage Hoyer Carrera while driving and sure. feel, you know, go for the full effect. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Is is there any watch reboot that you would love to see from that sort of golden era of racing? Is there something you'd love to see brought back? I would love to see gold Hoyers on the wrist of drivers on bracelets with their name and blood type engraved in the back again. Like that's, yeah. that, that would be me. They just came out with a gold Carrera, actually, in honor of Jack Hoyer's 90th birthday. So I just think that the drivers are always looking for to save every ounce of weight. So I'm not sure we'll see it in the in the car. <laughs> but yeah, that would be super cool. I like the Camaro a lot. I think it's such a cool watch. I have one actually sitting next to me. But Love it. the shape is very much like the predecessor to the Monaco made by the same company, Irvin Picaray SA. Um, a lot, you know, just they do have a super cool racing heritage. I had have one that came, that was awarded to a winner at the American Road Racing Championships in 1967 and came from the driver's daughter. But it says ARRC champion on the dial. and Just so cool. That was as far as I can tell, those were the very earliest Camaros. And in the catalog from that race, which was at Daytona Beach, it says that the winners would get Carreras. So it's kind of funny. They obviously pivoted after the catalog was printed <laughs> to Camaros, their newest model. But um, yeah, just like that, that's a very cool model. It's obviously out of production. There's a lot of cool stuff from the 70s that's obviously coming back as a general style. I really like the original Autavias. Uh, um, it's one of my favorite case shapes, the 1163 case. Um, yeah. I would love to get a chronomatic for my collection one day if I ever had the opportunity. Uh, chronomatic Autavia. I've sold them at Christie's and um, really, really love that model. Amazing. Eric Wynn, this has been awesome. Where can people find you? I'm on Instagram at, at Eric, E-R-I-C-M, as in Michael, Wind, W-I-N-D. Also on my website at windvintage.com. And you can always reach out through the website. My assistant will hopefully provide an initial response. And then I'm happy to try to be helpful. Awesome. I will put those in the show notes so everybody knows where to find you and to reach out to you. But thank you for chatting today, Eric. It's been awesome. 
Thank you um, so much, it's been amazing to learn so many of these great stories about the history of motorsport from you and put them together as a history. And there may be a shared project there that we'll keep working on in the background. Yes, please. Thank you so much, Todd. All right, Eric. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Thanks. Thank you all for hanging out this week and tuning in for Eric Wind. Eric dropped a ton of knowledge about watches and the connection to motorsport on us, specifically a few watches that we haven't even covered in this series. Stay tuned for more on those. Eric, I can't thank you enough for coming on and hanging out and talking about watches and motorsport. I look forward to getting to do it again, my friend. We've got the final watches of the year coming up this weekend in New York, with Christie's kicking us off on Thursday, December 8th with their important watches auction. Sotheby's will have their auction on Friday, December 9th, and Phillips will cover the weekend Saturday and Sunday with their New York Watch Auction 7 on Saturday and Sunday. I'm looking forward to bringing you highlights and insights from those auctions, so stay tuned next week for that update. This is your host, Todd Searle. Thank you for tuning in. If you liked the conversation today, please rate the show or leave a review on your platform of choice. And please share this episode and this show with friends who might enjoy it on social media. I'll be back next week with a watch auction wrap-up. Have a great weekend, everyone. And as always, keep moving forward.